This is the What Happened Today podcast, your daily history podcast that tells you what happened on this day in history. Brought to you by the Productive Leisure Network online, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com, and on Facebook and Twitter at ProdLeisure. I'm your host, Will Floyd, and what happened today, November 5th in 1688, William III, Prince of Orange and Stotholder of the Netherlands, landed with a massive fleet at Brixham Torbay in the county of Devon in southwest England. William's landing effectively was the main action of the Glorious Revolution. By invading, and essentially that meant landing in England, William was able to take the thrones of England, Scotland, and Ireland from his father-in-law and uncle, James II. The entire sweep of William's invasion and then his subsequent rule along with his wife, Mary, would be known as the Glorious Revolution, basically from the moment they took power. And it got the name the Glorious Revolution for two reasons. One, the impetus for William's invasion, and a large reason why it was so easy for him, was that he was a Protestant, as was his wife, and they were overthrowing a Catholic monarch in James II. The other reason it was called the Glorious Revolution is that it was nearly bloodless. There were some small battles, most notably the Battle of Dover later in 1688, but nothing that amounted to full-scale war. And this occurred in living memory for many people across the British Isles of the English Civil Wars of the 1640s and then the interregnum of Oliver Cromwell ruling as Lord Protector without a king. This meant that people were astonished that a change in government so drastic could happen so easily. And the key to understanding why William was able to come as essentially a foreign invader and be greeted with open arms by so many people throughout England is the immense unpopularity of his father-in-law, James. James II was the second son of a monarch who was beheaded. James's father was Charles I. After beginning his rule in 1625, he then spent nearly a quarter of a century alienating almost everyone who had any influence inside England. His religious reforms made the church a little too high church for many people. His autocratic style rubbed Parliament the wrong way. And he almost never seemed to engage anyone in a way that would have been productive. And so civil war broke out in the 1640s. After a series of conflicts and various failed negotiations, Charles I would lose his head in January of 1649. And for 11 years, Puritan Oliver Cromwell, along with his parliamentarian allies, ruled England. Meanwhile, James, along with his older brother Charles, were in exile. They were the poor orphans of Europe. Living in France, mostly, they came under the influence of the French king, Louis XIV. But in 1660, After Oliver Cromwell had passed away and his son Richard proved ineffective as a ruler, the monarchy was restored, with Charles II taking the throne. Charles had many children, none of whom were legitimate. And so when Charles passed away in 1685, the crown went to his brother. And so in his life, James had gone from the second son of a monarch to a dispossessed prince living in exile to the heir to the throne to king himself. And yet he never seemed to view this as some fortunate turn of circumstances that allowed him to really understand what he was given. In fact, he started repeating many of the mistakes of his father, but there was one crucial difference. Whereas many people said that Charles I 
was a pseudo-Catholic, someone who was making the Protestant nation of England more and more like the Catholic Church, James II was in fact a practicing Catholic. After his first marriage, he had decided to marry a Catholic princess, Mary of Modena, and then converted himself. When he took the throne in 1685, he was the brother of a king who had recently passed away who had no other heirs. It would have been difficult not to put him on the throne, but there was concern about a Catholic monarch. And so from 1685 on, there were whispers about what could be done. Conveniently, James did have two children who were Protestants, two princesses, Mary and Anne. Mary had been wedded off in 1677 as a 15-year-old to William III, Prince of Orange. This meant that he was the sovereign ruler of the Netherlands. And more importantly, he was perhaps the great Protestant hero on the European continent. In a series of wars against Louis XIV, William took his small, although prosperous nation and defeated the greatest power on the continent consistently. He held off the mighty Sun King. And for this, he was a hero. He seemed to have created the world in his own image as much as he could. He actually was technically the Prince of Orange from birth, as his father had died a week before he was born. And so he was raised by his mother, the sister of James II, Mary Princess Royal. And he was raised as a committed Protestant in the Protestant Netherlands. And so he was there. He was ready. It seemed that he would be a great person to bring in. But also, the situation was there was an aged king who no one much liked, but people didn't think would be around that long. And he conveniently had a Protestant daughter married to the key Protestant figure in Europe. There didn't need to be action taken against James. You just had to sit and wait if you wanted a return to a Protestant nation. A few things changed this. First, James was not willing to sit around and merely say that Catholics should have more rights or try and work with Parliament. He tended to aggravate Parliament consistently. He appointed Catholics to positions that he did not necessarily have a royal right to appoint them to. And, perhaps most strikingly, he wanted not just religious toleration, but almost to make Catholics have equal standing with Anglicans. And he was doing this as the head of the Church of England, something that was put in place during the English Reformation of the early 16th century by Henry VIII. There was mass confusion. But again, people were not that concerned because on the horizon would be a Protestant ruler. And then on June 10th, 1688, James II had a son. Mary of Modena gave birth to James Francis Edward, who was immediately granted the title Prince of Wales. And it meant that he was the heir to the throne and he was going to be raised Catholic. Now that immediate Protestant future seemed gone. And once again, people in England turned to William III. Although there had possibly been plans for an invasion for months, the real impetus was a letter that would come to be known in history as the Invitation to William. Dated June 18th, it reached William by the end of the month. And in the Invitation to William, seven leading men in England who would gain the nickname the Immortal Seven asked William to invade. They said, we are a Protestant nation who now have not only a Catholic monarch, but a Catholic heir to the throne. And they said, if you come and invade, we will be able to support you. This was what William needed. And it's key that these were not just some random political agitators. 
The seven were the Earl of Shrewsbury, the Earl of Devonshire, the Earl of Danby, the Viscount Lumley, Henry Compton, Bishop of London, Edward Russell, and Henry Sidney, the last two of whom were leading military men. This was not just something that said, yes, if you come, you might have some support and we can engage in a battle. William felt that if he landed, he would have the support of many of the nobles. Meanwhile, throughout England, a propaganda campaign started saying, this Prince of Orange, this man who grew up in the Netherlands, and it should be noted, someone who was a Calvinist rather than the Middle Road Anglicanism, was a true Protestant friend of England and a true Stuart. He was, after all, the grandson of Charles I, and his wife was the daughter of the most recent king. And so there was this grand movement towards William. Lord John Churchill, one of the great military commanders under James's rule, actually defected to William before William had even gotten his fleet together in August of 1688. But William had other problems. He was engaged in a large-scale war that involved not only France, but the Holy Roman Empire and other smaller states, and he needed some distraction. And so he was able to convince Austria to continue putting pressure on Louis so that Louis would not engage a naval fleet as William crossed the English Channel. And also he had to build a huge fleet. Conveniently, Amsterdam, where he had lived his entire life, was the world's largest financial center at the time. And so he had to get various funds together. One of the key allies in this was a banker named Francisco Lopez Suazo, who was descended from Portuguese Jews who were kicked out during an inquisition. He even got some support from then Pope Innocent XI because the Pope at that time hated Louis XIV as much as any other ruler in Europe. But so as the fall of 1688 came about, there was a massive fleet and it looked like William would be able to, but there was hesitation naturally among Dutch leaders. They did not really see the point of their ruler going and becoming king of England. And furthermore, they were still worried about what France might do. However, at that point, in a battle over who could be bishops throughout Germany, the king of France went and made an attack in Germany. This basically gave the opportunity not only to have a distraction for the French, but also anger towards the French from Dutch leaders. And so now the plan was on. On September 22nd, the first ships began to embark. William came with something known as the Declaration of the Hague, in which he promised that what he wanted to do was maintain the Protestant religion, have a free parliament, and also, perhaps tellingly, investigate whether the Prince of Wales was the legitimate offspring of James II. But he said, I am not here to overthrow the king. On the other hand, he was saying that he thought the king was passing off a bastard as his own son so that he could promote the Catholic religion, which James was a supporter of and which was the enemy of William, and that he was on the side of parliament against a king. To anyone who had any memory of the English Civil War, which was everyone in England, nearly, this had a particular ring to it. There was an English naval fleet that attempted to stop the crossing of the Channel, and they might have had an opportunity, but it appeared that winds would not favor the Dutch. At the end of October, William's fleet finally left the small port of Helvoetsluis. They couldn't actually make it anywhere near England before the winds changed on them, and they had to return to port. It looked like they might have to give up, and then what would become known as the Protestant wind came about, and William was able to take a favorable wind towards England. And even though the wind changed before they could actually land at Torbay, creating a fog, this actually meant that the English couldn't access the Dutch fleet either. And so William brought about his fleet and disembarked with an army in southwest England. He had probably about 15,000 men, 
a massive force. It was said that his fleet was many times larger than the Spanish Armada, which just a century before had tried to bring Catholicism to Protestant England. Now a Protestant ruler was trying to overthrow a Catholic ruler. And as William began to move, it turned out that James's position was incredibly weak. The French offered to send their own armies, but he knew that that would collapse any support he had in England. He gathered forces and left London, which left it to anti-Catholic rioting. By late November, James's daughter Anne, who did not like her brother-in-law William, finally went to William's side, largely because her great friend, Sarah Churchill, who was married to Lord Churchill, who had been the first main defection, now was on the side of William. Towns began not so much to surrender to William as he marched through the countryside as welcome him in. And in early December, Queen Mary and infant Prince James went to France. Then King James himself tried to escape. Famously, he left the Great Seal in the Thames because constitutionally at the time, no parliament could be summoned without the Great Seal of the office of the king. It didn't work. He was captured as he was trying to leave the Isle of Sheppey. At that point, there was an attempt to try and have some rapprochement between the king and his son-in-law. There wasn't really anything that could be done. William had all the power. His forces were most victorious. And James had almost no power to draw from other than simply being king. Just before Christmas, on December 23rd, James was able to leave for France. It was said that William ordered the Dutch officers to let him go. They did not want another regicide, something that had been visited on England to James's father and William's grandfather. 40 years earlier. And so William and Mary were crowned joint monarchs before the end of the year. They were now Protestant rulers, ruling jointly as William and Mary, king and queen of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And in a series of parliamentary acts, they did grant some limited religious toleration to non-conforming sects, but Catholic emancipation would have to wait almost a century and a half. There was more recognition of the role of parliament and that a free parliament, as William promised, was more in place after the Glorious Revolution. And although it was called the Glorious Revolution and the Bloodless Revolution, there were battles to be had. Certainly, in the next few years, the main battles would take place in Ireland, what was known as the Williamite War in Ireland. There, at the Battle of the Boyne, William's forces would soundly defeat James's forces, effectively ending any hope that James had for taking the throne. But both his son and his grandson would try and take the throne back in 1715 and 1745. They would come through Scotland, and neither were successful. And despite large-scale battles in both of those Jacobite risings, as they were known, the Jacobites, those loyal to the line of James II, would never really be able to have any opportunity to reclaim the throne of England. And the rule of James II was effectively over. As soon as William III, Prince of Orange, landed his massive invasion fleet, at Brixham Torbay, which is what happened today, November 5th in 1688. That will do it for today's episode, but as always, please check back in tomorrow for a brand new episode because we are a daily history podcast and we do put out a new episode each and every day. You can also find all of our episodes on our website, ProductiveLeisureNetwork.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you are listening to us on either iTunes or Stitcher, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a rating and leave a review because those are the ways you can help us to get onto charts and be heard by brand new listeners. 
You can also help us out a bit more directly by going to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash productive leisure, and becoming one of our patrons. At Patreon, patrons give small monthly contributions to support ongoing creative work, like a podcast network. So if you want to hear more of the What Happened Today podcast or any other Productive Leisure Network podcast, please go to patreon.com slash productive leisure and become one of our patrons today. You can also follow us for updates on everything to do with the Productive Leisure Network on Facebook and Twitter at Prod Leisure. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.